Let me say a prayer for us and we'll just get started. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity we have to open your word and let you speak to us down through the centuries about the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of humanity. Father, we are grateful that we live in a country where we can study your word and we can do it without harassment. We do pray for our country. I pray for unity in our country. I pray for civility in our country. I do pray for the leaders of, of our country, whatever their political party, that you would turn their hearts to you, that we as Americans can be a beacon of justice and for your love in this world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you are probably used to this by now, but there is the number to text your questions during class. Where, wherever you are, Edmund, live stream, you text them and we'll try to answer questions. We are studying Romans and I'm going to do something a little different. We are in chapters 9 through 11. There are 16 chapters in Romans, so we have a few more sessions left. We have some of the more interesting things. We're going to talk about politics here in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about a radically different way to live based on what we have learned, and we're gonna start applying it here pretty soon. But in Romans chapter nine through 11, the first eight chapters do a beautiful job of rolling out the gospel. What actually is the good news about Jesus Christ? And I hope that it's changed the way you think about the gospel, and it's been very encouraging and empowering. Chapters nine through 11, we're, we're spending two sessions on it because it covers two big topics. First is the sovereignty of God. And if you remember in our last lesson, we talked about how does God's sovereignty, meaning God is, uh, his will is driving all of the universe and all of history, and it's going somewhere. Your life's going somewhere. My life's going somewhere. How does that interact with human will, the ability for us to make choices? And so we talked about how does God's sovereignty and human will work together? We talked about uh, Calvinism and we talked about Arminianism and Wesleyanism. And really all those are, are sincere, honest attempts to read the scripture and understand what is God saying to us. And sometimes it's not entirely clear, but we talked about those things. The second topic that's in Romans chapters 9 through 11 has to do with the Jewish people uh, of of the time when it was written. And the, the reason this becomes an issue is because of God's plan throughout history. So in order to just kind of lead up and build the framework, I'd like to take you back and sort of tell you the story that leads up to the cross of Christ. In other words, the gospel event, the crucifixion, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That event is the gospel. The word gospel means good news. So I want to go back and I want to trace what God had been doing for the 2,000 years before the cross. And that's going to set the framework for us to understand what Paul's going to talk about in chapter 9 through 11 about what about the Jewish people. What happens to them now? So that should only take four or five hours. So let's jump right into it. And of course, we have maps. If we're going to do history, we need maps. So let's go back to 2000 BC. And I'm going to use traditional dating and I'm rounding it off a little bit. The dates are not as important as the plan. This is the Middle East in that time. I mean, that's Iraq and Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Israel, Syria. I mean, that's that part of the world in the time of Abraham. Abraham is a significant figure in the history of humanity, 
But particularly in Genesis, starting in Genesis 12, you pick up the story of a specific individual and his offspring, his descendants. God begins a thread in this plan to redeem humanity. In other words, remember Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3? The wrath of God is justifiably sits on humanity because we have all rebelled against God. We talked about that in Romans chapter 1 through 3. Well, we have a problem. We have a terminal problem called sin, a condition of sin, a rebellion against God. Started in the garden, continues to today. So God reaches out for us, since we're not able to turn around and say, we've been sinful, God, we're going to live up to your standard. We can't do that. So God came after us, and he begins this plan. begins with Abraham, and he chooses Abraham, not through any merit of Abraham. All Abraham did was believe what God told him. He had faith. He trusted God. You'll see the comparisons there with the gospel. How are we saved? By God's grace through our trust in Jesus Christ. Same thing with Abraham. He trusted God. He did what God told him. So if you remember, God told Abraham to leave his hearth and home, and he was going to go to this land of Israel. That's called Canaan at that time, but it's the land of Israel, and he did. And so God begins a plan, and he makes a covenant. He makes an arrangement, an agreement, a contract with Abraham, and he makes three promises to Abraham. He says, number one, Abraham, even though you don't have any children right now, you are going to become the father of a great nation. And what that means is your descendants are going to be so numerous you can't count them. In other words, you will begin a family of, that's a huge group of people. Second thing, I will give that group of people a land of their own. And that land happens to be what we now call the nation of Israel. So it's this area right here. So that's modern-day Israel, Canaan in that time. So Abraham goes there and settles there. The third promise that he gave to Abraham is a little bit cryptic. And Abraham, I'm convinced, did not understand this. But he said, Abraham, I will bless all of the nations of the earth through you. So three promises. A lot of descendants, a land of their own, and I'll bless all the nations of the earth through you. And so God begins to work through a specific group of people. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about anybody else in the world, but he begins to use these people to fulfill a specific purpose. Abraham is the first Jew. He is the first person of that group of people, the children of Abraham. Then he has a son, he has a son, they have... Jacob or Israel has 12 sons, becomes the 12 tribes. In other words, they're all descended from Abraham. So covenant with Abraham says, make you a great nation, give you this land, bless all the earth through you. So after Abraham, his descendants, sure enough, he has a child. He begins to have descendants. Abraham dies, but sure enough, it goes on just as God said, and his descendants end up you kind of remember this, we're just moving through the Bible. Genesis, now we're moving to Exodus. This is the beginning of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, that's the part where you quit your Bible reading plan in a year. Everybody dies in Genesis there, or I mean in Leviticus. But basically in Exodus, what you see is those descendants go to Egypt. 
and they become enslaved, and they become a great nation. They literally explode into a large group of people, become enslaved, God takes them out of Egypt and takes them back to this land. So I wanna fast forward to 1400 BC. This is the map that you have in a little more detail on your handout. So 1400 BC, they've come out of slavery in Egypt, but now they are a large number of people, just like God had promised 600 years before. And God brings them to that land, just like he had promised 600 years before. This is how the land was allocated by the 12 tribes of Israel. The reason for this map is just mainly to show you that when God makes this covenant with Moses, he has effectively fulfilled two of those three promises. They are a nation and they have a land. And so he makes a covenant with Moses to continue furthering the plan. He still has that third promise. I'm gonna bless all the nations of the earth through you. And it's not clear, how's that going to come about? How's that gonna be? So God continues to work with a specific group of people and he makes the covenant with Moses, the contract. That contract is basically the first five books of the Old Testament. It's called the Torah or the Pentateuch or sometimes just the law of Moses. And it's God saying, you are gonna be my chosen people. Now, once again, doesn't mean God doesn't love or care about everybody else in the world, but he said, I chose you just as I chose Abraham. Why are they chosen? Are they chosen because they're better people? No, Abraham wasn't better than anyone. The only thing Abraham ever did was trust God and believe him. And that's exactly what God asked him. He said, you trust me and you just do what I tell you and you are gonna be my chosen people. They're not chosen because they're better, they're chosen for a purpose. I want you to remember that because when we get to the gospel, you're gonna go, wow, these parallels, God had this plan for 2000 years. So they're chosen for a purpose. What was their purpose? Well, he tells them in the law of Moses, he says, I've chosen you to be a nation of priests, basically meaning people that are dedicated to me, to God, I am your God, you don't have any other gods like all the people around you, and you are going to be a light to the world, meaning you are going to be a special people I have chosen, and I'm gonna use you to be an example to the rest of the world to sort of bring them along and point them to me. So what basically God does is he takes a specific group of people, says I'm gonna use you to help reach everybody else. You see this third promise starting to kinda of come into focus? I'm gonna bless all the nations of the earth through you, Abraham. Well, he's using Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, to be an example to everyone else and point them to God. He does this in two ways. This is interesting. First, he does it by giving them the law of Moses. He gives them 613 commandments written in the book, uh, well, the first five books of the Bible, a lot of them in Leviticus. A lot of very specific rules. Why? He gives them these rules for several reasons, but one reason is you're going to live to a standard that the rest of these people don't live to. And when they look at you, they're gonna go, why would you obey all 613 commandments? You people must really be devoted to your God. Maybe I need to check this out. I mean, why would you be devoted, that devoted to a God who's not real? Maybe we should all be holier. Maybe we should all check out this God. So in other words, their conduct would set them above, not that they were superior, but that they stood out. 
Okay, keep that in mind. That also ties into the gospel. So they're going to be a peculiar people. And I don't mean peculiar as in they act strange. Well, they kind of act strange. But basically, they're peculiar because they're living to a different standard. I mean, they don't engage in sexual immorality. They give money to the poor. They do all these commands. Whereas the nations around them are like, why would you voluntarily give some of your money to the poor? Why would you restrain your impulses? Why would you not lie, cheat, and steal? In other words, you can see how that would be a witness. So the law of Moses made them a light to the world, but also national Israel. Now I want to talk about Israel as a political entity not just as a people. So God said, I'm going to make you a great number of people. Those are the Jewish people. Gave them the law. They're going to be a light to the world. But I'm also going to give you a land, and you're going to become a nation. And he's going to use national Israel to also be a witness to the world around. So the people themselves and the nation are both being chosen by God for a specific purpose. Okay, question? I have a couple. Okay. What is the significance of Abram's name change to Abraham? What is the significance of Abram's name change to Abraham? Well, let's see. Probably it's a footnote in your Bible, but Abram, there are two, two significant items here. Uh, Abram means, uh, what's it mean, uh, exalted father, something like that. And then Abraham means father of many. In other words, the name change kind of ties into the promise that was made. I mean, he didn't have any kids, but God said, you're going to be father of many uh, people. He's like, really? He goes, yeah, I promise it's going to happen. So the name kind of ties into the promise. The other thing, and this still happens today in some Orthodox Jewish sects, changing your name changes your destiny. I mean, I'm not telling you that's necessarily true. I'm just telling you that is a belief is that a name change given to you by a rabbi, or in this case by God, is a sign that your destiny is also changing. So I think those two things are the significance of the name change. Other question? A question about goodness. In Romans 3, it says, no one is good, but when we follow, choose to follow Christ, that's a good choice. In Genesis, when God creates everything, he says, it's all good. Are we not included in that? Or when it says no one is good, is it talking about reproducing righteousness that God requires? Good question. So what does it mean when he says no one is good? So let's, uh, I'll try to keep this really short. It gets worse than that because Jesus himself says that. You remember when God comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, and he asked him a question. He said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. What that means, and then now let's also compare. So it's true, we do have a goodness problem here. And then think about Genesis where God created this, God created that, and God saw that it was good. That's true. God creates uh, the universe. He creates the Garden of Eden. He creates man and woman. And he says, this is good stuff. All good. The fall happens Romans 1 through 3 describes what happened after the fall. Every single one of us have rebelled against God, and we now have an alienation problem from God. I mean, we have a vertical problem, right? 
And then we also have a horizontal problem. We don't get along with each other very well. So sin disrupted, disordered the whole world. So to say that we are not good means we are not righteous. So the question nailed that. It's saying we're not, quote, good people. There are no good people. I know we say that. I'm not trying to nitpick, but at the end of the day, here's a question you'll get. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? I don't mind answering that question. In fact, maybe in January, we'll do the book of Job and just talk about suffering. You guys ready to be depressed for a few weeks? Maybe we'll talk about that. But that's a fair question, but it's not worded right. Because I would wanna say, and this is a big deal, there are no good people. That question presupposes there are totally innocent people and just bad stuff happens. There are no innocent people. Jesus said there aren't any innocent people. The Bible says there aren't, none of us are innocent. That's why the gospel had to happen, so that we could become righteous. So that's what he's saying when he said no one is good. Great question. Well, let's keep going in our history. So in 1400 BC, roughly, they have a nation, they have the people. Let's go forward a few hundred years to the reign of David. So this is in about 1000 BC. Now you see, this is a neat little map because it just shows you Saul, David, Solomon, but basically it's kind of a golden era. What's happening now? Now you see you have the nation, they've defeated their enemies, Solomon is rich, he's wise. I mean, the whole world's looking at the Israelites, the Jewish people, and they're looking at the nation and they go, your God must be something because you guys don't have any oil and you really don't have much in the way of armaments and yet look at this. I mean, historically speaking, the history of the Jewish people and of Israel should not have happened. They should have just been wiped out. In fact, if you look at the 20th century, ever since statehood of Israel, a lot of people would say, why in the world is Israel even still here? Well, it's pretty miraculous, isn't it? Well, it's God fulfilling this commandment to them. And so they have a people, they have a nation. But he makes another contract, sort of a side deal with David. He said, oh, the Mosaic law, that, that's all still going on. I'm still working my plan. But David, I'm going to make another agreement with you. Your throne is going to last forever. David goes, really awesome. And you think to yourself, that can't be literal. And so some of that prophecy seems to refer to his son Solomon, but some of it seems to be looking forward. And sure enough, the Jews have always read that prophecy uh, back in the book of Samuel to be forecasting to this Messiah that was going to come. God told Moses in 1400, I'm going to raise up a prophet kind of like you who's going to do something. He's going to set a lot of people free from slavery like you did, Moses. Then he tells David, David, I'm going to raise up a king like you, but his kingdom will never end. And so you begin to start looking toward something bigger that is going to happen out of this whole process. So this little thread, this little plan that God's been working all culminates in Jesus Christ on the cross, empty grave, resurrection. So the law of Moses and the Jewish people, Jesus was a Jew, out literally, out of Abraham. Jesus is a child of Abraham 2,000 years earlier. He's also a child of David in his heritage. And so from Abraham, he's gonna fulfill that third promise all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. 
And he's gonna fulfill that promise to David that out of your lineage will come a king whose throne will last forever. So the Jews at that time see this Messiah coming. What are they thinking? They're thinking he's going to be like David. He's gonna conquer his enemies and sit on a throne. And he's going to turn our hearts back to God like Moses did and give us new communication from God. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did but not in the way they thought. But here's a fair question. If God's been working this plan for 2,000 years and he's been doing it through the Jews so that he could bless everybody, why did so many Jews not accept this? You see the question? Why? Many Jews became Christian, but many more did not. And in fact, they persecuted the Christians. And in fact, they had a hand in crucifying the Messiah. So the question comes, and Paul wants to pause. He says, time out, because I know what you're thinking. If God's been working on this through this special group of people for 2,000 years, what happened that they missed this? They didn't see it. So that's what's happening as we jump into Romans. So now you have the background, and Paul says, what shall we say? The Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness, in other words, we weren't chosen people, they weren't working with God, we were kind of watching the Jews going, hey, maybe your God really is real. He says, the Gentiles were not following the law of Moses, they weren't behaving uh, anywhere close to God's holiness, but they have obtained righteousness because they trusted in Christ. And they didn't even act very good. He says, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, now he's talking about Israel, the Jewish people, and the nation. He's kind of putting it together. He's saying, by and large, the chosen people, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, in other words, they had the law of Moses, they didn't attain it. They didn't believe. So what Paul's saying is, hey, what's up with that? Why not, he says, because they pursued it, the Jews, not by faith, but by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. It's, this is what is written. This is a prophecy from several hundred years before. See, I lay in Zion, Jerusalem, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's a messianic prophecy. It says about Jesus, he's going to fulfill all these prophecies, but he's also going to be a stumbling block. The Greek word, by the way, for stumbling block is where we get our word scandal. In other words, Jesus is going to be, just to use, uh, break one of the rules of exegesis, but this is cool. Jesus is scandalous. In other words, he trips us up. And he tripped them up, didn't he? Because he didn't do what they thought he was going to do. He came and he said, I'm going to fulfill that third promise. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through me. You're going to be saved by grace through faith, by grace through trust in what I'm about to do. I'm going to do something, death, burial, resurrection, bearing the sins of the world, reconciling us with God. That's what Romans 1 through 6 is talking about. He said, I'm going to do that, and if you trust in that, you're going to be right with God. And some of the Jews go, what? You're kidding me. We've been following 613 rules. I can't accept that. That's just, you are, that's scandalous. I can't accept it. And that's what this is saying. What Paul said is they were trusting in their behavior which was only ever a way to get to Christ. And so they held on to the behavioral system and they missed it because salvation was by God's gift through trusting in Jesus Christ. So he said the Gentiles had no problem with that at all. 
They were like, wow, this is the best news I have ever heard. In other words, I know I'm alienated against God. I know I'm not a, quote, good person. And you're telling me that Jesus Christ made a way for me? I'm following him. But the Jews were said, no, we're trying hard to live up to God's standard. We're going to hold on to that. And so that's what he says is that's part of why Israel did not uh, really embrace that. So there's an interesting thing there because that's still true today. Sometimes, quote, religious people hold on to our behavior. And people who are, quote, not religious sometimes have an easier, easier road to connect. They know that they're sinners. Sometimes we don't think we're really that big a sinner. And so remember Jesus' parable? Jesus talks about this. He said, a Pharisee came and he stood and he thanked God and said, thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like that guy. Right? So kind of proud. And was the Pharisee more righteous in his behavior? Sure. He behaved more like God wanted you to behave than this guy, but that'll never get you there. This guy, he said, Lord, I can't even come before you. Forgive me, a sinner. And so he's saved by grace. Pharisee is not. Beware of that because that can happen to us too. Let's never forget that the basis of our relationship with God, the basis of our salvation, our ongoing salvation is trusting in what Jesus Christ has done. We behave like God because of that. We don't, be, we're not saved because we behave like God. And that's what Paul's saying. Don't get that mixed up. So then he goes on and he wants to explore this just a little bit more. He said, so then I'm gonna ask this. We're in chapter 11. Did God reject his people? Interesting question. He said, well, they were the chosen people. They didn't accept Jesus, so what's God gonna do with them now? Did he reject those people? Paul said, no way, God's very faithful. He said, I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from one of the 12 tribes, the one of Benjamin. God did not reject his people. Don't you know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, uh, he goes on to talk about Elijah and, he, and Elijah says, oh God, I'm the only one who still believes in you. And God said, no, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not worshiped Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So what is he saying? He's saying God's actually got a plan. And that is a lot of Israel is not gonna follow Jesus Christ. He said, but I have a remnant. I have a small group of faithful Jews and they're going to be the nucleus of the church, of what I'm going to do. So there's two key ideas here. The idea of election, which we talked about in our last lesson, God sovereignly choosing and orchestrating history and the idea of a remnant. That is an idea that runs all through the Bible. And what the remnant basically means is that God doesn't need all of Israel to accomplish his plans. He'll do it with a small number of people and it will grow from there. It's kind of like what Jesus says when he talks about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. So when you plant it, it becomes huge. The kingdom of God is like yeast in some, a loaf of uh, dough, and you knead it in there, it spreads through all of it. So God's idea of a remnant is a faithful core, and he can use that, and he will grow that. He said it actually, God is able to take the remnant, the Jews that do believe, and he can grow that. 
So, Romans 9. This is an intro, I'm flashing back just a little bit because now he's gonna start to play on the word a little bit. Because if you think about it, what, uh, let me give you an example of how this worked. So you have the Jews, Israel, you have the Gentiles. The gospel is for everybody. Jesus is fulfilling that third promise. I'm gonna bless all the nations, not just the Jewish people, but everybody. Paul would go into a town, he would go into the synagogue on Saturday on the Sabbath, and he would talk to them about Jesus Christ. What would he do? He'd pick up the Old Testament, scroll, read something and say, that points to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how it works. He may have told the story I just told you. Remember Abraham? Here's what God was doing. Remember Moses? That's what God was doing. Remember David and what God said to him? That's what God was doing. And Jesus is what it all points to. That's what he was preaching. Some Jews believed, others didn't. The ones that didn't threw him out. What did he do then? Went to the Gentiles. He would just walk into the bar on Saturday. They're not worshiping, they're watching football, right? They're watching college football. So he'd walk in and say, hey, who's playing today? Great, hey, by the way, let's talk about Jesus. You know, and so he would talk about Jesus and many of them believed. And so what did the early, quote, church look like? What did the early group of believers look like? Mixed, people that were Jewish ancestry, people that were non-Jewish ancestry. What did they have in common? They all put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's what the church looks like. But he makes an interesting statement here because it says it's not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. In other words, it's through the promise. What's he saying there? He says, you've got national Israel and you're Israelites because you live in Israel. You also are Jewish because you're descended from Abraham. He said, but honestly, it's never been about your descent. It's been about your heart. It's been about your faith. In other words, not all of Abraham's children are really Israel, are really chosen, the chosen people. Jesus says the same thing, and they got really ticked at him. Remember, Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish leaders, and he says, you guys think you're all going to heaven because you're children of Abraham, you're descended from Abraham. He says, if God wanted to, he could make children of Abraham out of those stones. Being a descendant of Abraham, that's not what being chosen means. They had mistaken chosen to mean we're special, as opposed to God saying, you're chosen because I have a job for you to do. And so when Jesus said that, they tried to kill him because, hey, you're attacking our very identity. We think we're all going to heaven because we're children of Abraham. And Jesus said, no, that's not the way it works. And that's what Paul is saying. Not all Israel is Israel. And what does he mean? Not everybody who's an Israelite really believes. Let's keep going. You'll see he's gonna use another analogy like this. This is good news for you and for me. So chapter 11, he says again, did the Jews stumble? over the stones so far as to fall beyond recovery, not at all. In other words, God's actually still working a plan here. He says, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. I'm talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, that basically if some of the branches, 17, had not uh, have been broken off and you, even though you're a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in, you now share nourishing root, uh, sap from the olive root. Here's the analogy. He says, Israel is like an olive tree, the Jewish people. 
And some of them didn't believe, and they're like branches that have been cut off. Remember Jesus? John 15, he says, I am the gardener, right? My father is the gardener, and I'm the olive tree, and you're the branches, and branches that don't bear fruit get cut off. They get pruned. They get uh, thrown into the fire. Well, the Jews that didn't believe, he's using this, and he says they got cut off of the tree because they weren't bearing fruit. They didn't trust in Christ. And you Gentiles, you did. And so you're a wild olive tree. And so you got grafted in. Now you're part of Israel, right? In other words, you're part of God's family. So the church is basically made up of all those who trust in Christ, some who are Jewish by descent, some who are Gentiles. And so here you are, this olive tree, and we've been grafted in. He says, strange as it sounds, the fact that the Jewish people, many of them did not believe, made an opportunity for God's plan to work for us. I mean, think about this. What if all the Jews had believed? And the Pharisees originally, even the ones that believed in Jesus, wanted Christianity to just be another sect of Judaism. Well, it's not. In other words, Judaism is an avenue to get to Christianity, if you will. I mean, it's an odd way to say it. But basically, Christianity, Christ wasn't going to be just a little offshoot of Judaism. But if all the Jews had believed, that would have been easy to happen. The fact that they rejected Christ is actually working into God's plan to open the door for us. And so he really fulfills that third promise in an interesting way. He says, even when the Jews chose not to believe in Jesus, God used that for good so that you and I could be brought in and grafted into the tree. And then 22 has got an interesting little warning. Consider the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And if, you, if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. In other words, everybody can be saved. The question is, will we trust in Christ and will we persevere? So you see this really interesting uh, passage here, because the Jews, and here's the interesting dilemma. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. It's interesting, this interplay between God's will and uh, people's will. In other words, God's desire is for everyone to be saved. Many of the Jews did not. And you could say, oh, that's a failure in God's plan. Actually, no, God's cooler than you think. That presented an opportunity for that third promise to be fulfilled. And everybody can now come in. In other words, there's a prophecy that said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Jesus saying, I wasn't good enough to fulfill your expectations of the Messiah, but what I did is going to save the whole world. You rejected me, and that opened the door for all of us to accept him. It's really quite subtle what he's saying. He says, God's able to get his will done. He's going to fulfill that third promise, even if our decisions seem to thwart his will. So it's a very interesting interplay, but you see God's sovereignty and his love. And then this is interesting. Verse 26 and he says, so all Israel will be saved. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. In other words, he's saying even Israel's rejection of Jesus 
works into God's plan. Does that mean those Israelites? He's like, good job. No, terrible job. You rejected Jesus Christ. But even that worked into God's plan. And he says, all Israel will be saved. That's definitely what Jews then and many Jews now believe. This is a quote from the Mishnah. The Mishnah is, remember Moses in 1400 BC, goes up on the mountain, God gives him 613 commandments, types it in, and brings it back down and says, here's the list of rules. Well, according to Jewish uh, teaching, you, you're not going to find this in your, in your Bible, but according to Jewish teaching, he also gave Moses oral instructions that Moses said, don't type this in, just pass it on. And so he just gave him some oral instructions. By the way, that oral law is what Jesus had such heartburn with the Pharisees. He didn't disagree about the 613 commandments. He kept all of those. But they had a bunch of other commandments that were the oral law. The Mishnah is basically that oral law. So this is not in your Bible, but this is the teaching, and that is all Israelites have a share in the world to come. What does that mean? All Jews go to heaven. I mean, that's what that teaching is. That's what they believed. This teaching is concurrent in, with Jesus' time and before. So basically, they thought, because we are Israelites, we are all going to heaven. Paul says, all Israel will be saved, but that does not mean all Israelites are going to heaven. Because he said, not all Israelites are part of Israel. Christians look at this two different ways. One is called replacement theology, and that is... Jews were the plan until, whoops, cut them off. Church is the plan, moves forward. The other idea is basically Jews move forward. Some accept Christ, others don't. Gentiles get grafted in. We call that the church, and on it goes. The new Israel, if you will, is Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ. So there's some difference in that theology as to what God's future plan is for the Israelites. Paul says all Israel will be saved. What does he mean by that? Most people think what he means by that is that, first of all, you can't really say uh, and be consistent with the New Testament that just because they're Jews, they're going to heaven. Jesus taught that's not true. In other words, the only way to heaven is through trust in Jesus Christ. The way most people understand that is, and this is why I'm going to fast forward now to the book of Revelation. That is typically thought of in uh, one of the views it's called dispensational theology, meaning it's a way to look at the book of Revelation and kind of harmonize this. So the thinking there is, again, only believers in Christ are right with God, but that in the end times, there's gonna be an opportunity for Israel, for the Jewish people, to believe in Christ. And here's the way it tends to go. And this is why this teaching is this way. You're gonna go, oh yeah, that's what I've heard. It's become really popular in about the past 150 years. The idea is that right before the tribulation starts, seven years of really bad stuff happening, uh, like today when the stock market went down 800 points, yeah, it's going to be that and worse. So basically, right before that happens, all the Christians leave, called the rapture, right? Then for seven years, you still have Israelites here, do I mean Christians, have Israelites in that seven years. And understand, they would understand then part of Revelation is they're going to be evangelists that go and preach Christ to the Jewish people. And many of them will believe. And so they're going to live through the tribulation, 
Jesus is gonna come and reign for a thousand years, and guess where he's gonna reign? In Israel. In other words, the thinking is that God's not quite through with the Jews yet. He has a plan for them in the end. Other Christians say, no, all Israel will be saved simply means the new olive tree that's got some Gentile believers in Christ and some Jewish believers, all of those people will definitely be saved. So a couple of different views in that. This is a very cryptic chapter. And then he closes it with this. So let me just kind of pause there, and if you have any questions, I think we have time to answer them. But basically, let me kind of sum this up, what he's saying. He says, I want to take a time out and just assure you that the fact that many of the Jews didn't believe and that some of them were complicit in Jesus' death actually worked in God's plan. Did they choose to do the wrong thing? Yes. Did it thwart God's plan? No. And in fact, in an unbelievable turn of events, it actually, God used it to further his plans. This is Romans 8.28 in action. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 28? In all circumstances, God works for the good of those who loved him, who've been called according to his purpose. This is a perfect example, meaning even though people are choosing to do wrong, even though you might be persecuted or arrested for your faith or somehow ostracized for your faith, God is still able to work through these circumstances to achieve his promise to you. God worked through the unfaithfulness of his chosen people and still made that third blessing come true. So I want you to see God as being awesome here. And in fact, I would like you to see God as being awesome all the time because that's what the Bible's about. The Bible is not about you and me. The Bible is about God and you and I just get to go, wow, how could you have loved me? How could you have done this for me? I'll give you my life. Okay, question. Did the apostles all agree that the Gentiles would be grafted in, or did some of them believe that the gospel was only for the Jews? Great question. Did the apostles think the gospel was only for the Jews? At first, it appears, based just on the book of Acts, it appears that's how they understood it. I'll give you an example. Let's just pick on Peter, leader of the, he was the early leader of the apostles. So in the first few chapters, he begins to preach this good news in Jerusalem. Remember Acts chapter 2? 3,000 Jewish people become Christians, meaning they put their trust in Christ in one day, in one sermon, right? I mean, that's even better than Billy Graham. So 3,000 people come down, they become Christians in one day, but they're all Jewish people. See, they had it in their head. Well, hey, it makes sense. Abraham, then you work through Moses, and then you made the promises to David. Clearly, you're using the Jewish people, and we Jewish people are the chosen people. By that time, all of the Jews had misunderstood that. They had failed in their purpose to be a light to the world, and instead, they'd all huddled up and said, we're special. By the way, we have to watch for that too, don't we? We get into our holy huddles. I know I'm on a tangent, but this is too good an application. So we get in our holy huddles as Christians and go, let's all huddle up in our church, because we're the chosen people, which that's true, you are chosen by God, and we'll just huddle up here till the end of the world and maybe he'll destroy all the mean bad people out there, right? So that's what the Jews were doing. What they didn't realize is you're not chosen because you're better, you're chosen because I have a purpose for you. Same thing for Christians. What was God or Jesus' last instruction? I want you to go out into the whole world, make disciples of all the nations. So when we get into our little holy huddle, 
we're being just like those Jewish Pharisees, like don't want any Gentiles in here. We too are chosen people for a purpose, to take this good news outside. So it does appear that they thought, hey, we're chosen people, this is for us, too bad for you Gentiles. In fact, they wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. But if you remember along about chapter eight or nine in Acts, Peter has a dream. And I won't go into great detail, but it's the way God teaches him. Then he gets a message from a Roman centurion, he's a Gentile, say, go to his house, he's got something to tell you. He goes to his house, goes in, eats, and the centurion says, I appreciate this because I know that you don't even think it's okay to come in my house and eat my food. But God told me you had a message. And Peter goes, I see now that this good news is even for the Gentiles. So it appears to have dawned on them very early, but I think they were caught in that same understanding at the beginning. Great question. Regarding your comment about all of Israel being saved, since you've been there recently, how close do you think Israel is to achieving this? So all Israel will be saved. How close is modern Israel to achieving this? Well, you have, to, you have to differentiate two things here. National Israel is an entity, and it may be that God has plans for national Israel. But as far as the true Israel, meaning, Paul said, not the descendants of Abraham, but the people that put their trust in Christ, I would say national Israel is Christians typically, typically are basically supportive of Israel as a nation because of national Israel's history. But as far as individual Jewish people coming to Christ, it seems like in Israel the same thing's happening as in Europe and in America, and there's more secularization. In other words, the Orthodox believers seem to be smaller. There are people becoming Christian in Israel, but it, it appears that in that nation, those people are following the same cultural patterns as you see other places. Okay, so it's kind of a weird little bit of a detail and kind of a, a detour off our main track, but Paul felt like it was important to explain why does the plan of God appear to take a right turn? And he said, that's so that you and I could be saved, that the unfaithfulness of the Jews, their hardening for a time was so that God could fulfill that promise to us. But any Jew that wants to accept Jesus Christ can and there's kind of a hint that Jewish people, perhaps in the end times, will come to Jesus Christ, depending on your theology. And so I realize that's kind of cryptic, and so does Paul. This is how he ends it. Oh, this is called a doxology. A doxology is a word of praise. And so he just breaks into spontaneous praise for God as he thinks about it. He says, man, this makes even my head hurt. He said, and I think I understand it. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing. Who has known the mind of the Lord? This is a, a, a quote from Isaiah. Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God? That's a quote from Job. That God should repay him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. In other words, what Paul is saying is, who could have foreseen this? Who could possibly be so awesome that you could take into account the unfaithfulness of your very chosen people and still make it work out to keep your promise to all of humanity? He goes, 
This is beyond my understanding. The love of God is beyond our understanding. I mean, why? We literally have all rebelled against God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, right? And we have all wandered from God. How unsearchable is his love that he would come for us and bear our sins and give us the opportunity to be reconciled by placing our trust in him? Paul just breaks out into praise. I would urge you to read the tail end of chapter 8 and the tail end of chapter 11 are both like this. It's just Paul, as he's writing it, the Holy Spirit just, he just goes, I gotta stop for a moment, I gotta sing a praise song here. I mean, it's just amazing, the more you think about it, how awesome God really is. And I hope that's what you get out of this, that God's sovereignty and God's plan, that he will, he will achieve his purposes. That's good news for you and me. Because what did he say about you? He said, if you will trust in me, I will take you to the promised land. You will have eternal life. All the things that went wrong in this life will be set right for eternity. Do you trust me? Do you believe that? The beauty of looking back at these plans, and that's why Paul's explaining this, is said, if he did that, he can surely do what he has promised to you. What does that mean for you and me? What it means for you and me is that it should it should permeate our day-to-day -day life, knowing whatever happens here is not outside God's plan. It's not like he was surprised like, oh my gosh, my chosen people have rejected my son and they killed him. Who saw that coming? That's not the way it worked, you know? God says, yeah, I'm so disappointed and yet I will still work everything out for good and I will still achieve it. That's true on our basis too. When you go to work and your boss is being a real jerk, and bad things are happening, and you had a flat tire, and traffic is backed up, and all of these things, I mean, I realize I'm being a little trivial here and being a little facetious, but my point is, when bad things happen to us, you realize if he can do that, he can handle this, and that's really true. That's why Christians have always been optimistic about the future, is our God is bigger than whatever can happen. Might it be unpleasant? Of course it might be unpleasant, but I know what awaits me at the end. Christianity is all about eschatology. When I say eschatology, I mean the long view. If you want to be a Christian and you think this week needs to go well or God's not a good God, that's not Christianity. Christianity says you take the long view and all of this works out. Here's what Paul said in Romans 8. I didn't show you this first. But he said, I consider that the troubles of this present life are not even worth comparing to the glory that we will see, the glory that will be revealed in us. What's he saying? He said, if you just lift your eyes up from your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, little problems of life, you go, this stuff pales into insignificance compared to what God has in store for us. So live your life like that. In fact, our next lesson is gonna take this into chapter 12 and Paul's going to talk about, really the Holy Spirit's going to talk about, a radically different way to live. Chapter 12 is a hinge in the book. He's going to go from, now that you understand what the gospel really is, I'm going to show you a different way of living. And I think it's going to be very useful for us as well. So you have two weeks to live your old way. In two weeks from tonight, whole new deal. I'll see you guys in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks.